Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You're listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series, The Gospel Matters. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. And if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, turn to Galatians chapter 1. Just a public service announcement. This is the worst Sunday of the year with daylight savings time. So you guys just grind it out with me. I'll try to be as chipper and awake as possible. Man, what's up? Your wife didn't even want to come listen to you pray this morning? This is what happens when we got doors in, in the wrong part of the sanctuary over here. Glad you guys could be with us. A um, couple of uh, housekeeping items. You guys are seeing a little bundle of joy up here that just joined the TBC family. Tim and Tasha Roundtree. Are you guys in the service today? Tim and Tasha usually up sometimes in the balcony, sometimes they're in the nursery. Um, little Dorothy Quinn is just probably just two weeks now, two and a half weeks old, less than three weeks. Uh, she's joining, let's see, Teddy. Beatrice and Amelia. So they've got a family of four now. If you guys see uh, Tim and Tasha around, just say congratulations to them and just a sweet, sweet family. Love to, love to see them increasing their territory there. Next slide for me. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm not mashing this. Um, we had a, had a chance to do a, a really great podcast this week. If any of you guys listened to our podcast, Hidden God, you can find that by going to our website, tulsabible.org, and go into the resources page and scroll down. There's actually a couple different podcasts you can access. You can also just go to iTunes or Spotify and search for Hidden God TBC Podcast. And we actually had a, a couple special guests on this week, Maddie Boltinghouse, our children's director, and Linda Cosgrove is one of our women's ministry discipleship leaders. And we just talked about a, an issue that's, that's real sensitive in our culture and, and something that uh, we want to provide a safe venue and avenue to talk about these things in pornography. This week we talked about women in pornography, and so I want to uh, leave you with a couple book references for that. We didn't have time to get to it on our podcast, and so, so here they are. Finally Free is a, a book from Heath Lambert, and these are all recommendations from Linda. Just does an awesome job with our women and discipling them. Uh, another one that she said would be a, a really good study for teens, and actually for moms, if you guys are looking for a study that you can take your daughters alongside of, this would be a really good one. It's Choosing Love by Heidi Johnston. Um, and so if you, if you want to talk more about these resources too, just see Linda after the service. I saw her just over here this morning. And, and the other one that she wanted to give to us, refer to us, is called Feminine Appeal by Carolyn Mahaney. And this is a, a book that's based largely on discipleship from Titus chapter 2. Older men disciple the younger men. Older women disciple the younger women. Again, if you're looking for some tools in that area, Linda's got some great ones. Uh, the drivers with Family Life Ministry, they can direct you to some really good resources too. And uh, we want to help you through these issues as you raise your families in a godly context here at Tulsa Bible Church. And so thanks for, uh, thanks for tuning in. If you like those podcasts, just hit a like button on there somewhere. YouTube has some videos that we have also with the podcast, and, and thanks to Linda for joining us this week. It was a lot of fun uh, recording that with you. So I think that's all I got for, did I talk about the fact that it's daylight savings time yet? And rainy and dark on top of that. Man, 
Love it. Some people, I think, just rebel against the clock manipulators. They just pretend like it's still, you know, what time would it be? Nine, ten o'clock, something like that. Get on with the sermon for a while. Let's go. It was October 14th, 1912. I might have shared this story with you before. It's one of my very favorite historical stories of all time. In Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was giving a campaign speech for the President of the United States. And he goes up to this, uh, to give a campaign in Milwaukee, and a disheveled, out-of-work bartender finds him in a crowd. He was riding in an open car about seven feet away and just shoots him right in the chest. Amazingly, Teddy Roosevelt kind of stumbles back when he's shot, of course, but he, he writes himself, and he says this. He says, stand back, don't hurt the man, bring him to me. And he looks his would-be assassin right in the face and gives him a dismissive glare. And everyone in Roosevelt's party was like, okay, Teddy, let's get you off to the hospital. We're going to get the ambulance. We're going to rush you. You've just been shot in the chest. This is a very serious in injury. And Teddy says to his party, he says, you guys just stay where you are. I'm going to make this speech, so you might as well compose yourselves. <laughs> and as he takes the lectern, he says, and I quote, friends, I should ask that you be as quiet as possible, and please excuse me for making a long, long speech. I'm going to do the best I can. It was a very serious injury. Uh, later on, the surgeon said that he had a fractured fourth rib on his right side, and it was just narrowly short of reaching his lungs. The reason why it uh, didn't reach his lungs is because Teddy Roosevelt had a speech folded up in his suit pocket that was 50 pages long right next to his eyeglasses case, and that stopped the bullet from penetrating into his lung. Otherwise, he would have been uh, coughing up blood, most likely. Teddy takes out his manuscript, this bloody manuscript that's been pierced by a bullet, and everybody's just shocked. And he goes on in Milwaukee to give this speech for 90 minutes. At the end of it, everybody's just, Teddy, Teddy, Teddy. After the, uh, went to the hospital, the surgeon said that um, Teddy Roosevelt was probably the most powerful man that has ever laid on his surgeon's table before. Just massive chest muscle, muscles and um, just, a, just a wonderful leader in our country. At the very beginning of the speech, the MC at the campaign announced that Teddy had been shot. Um, said something like, there's been an assassination attempt on Teddy's life. And he comes up to the pulpit, he starts to, starts to talk, and he says, it's true, I have been shot, but it's going to take more than that to take down a bull moose. <laughs> I tell you this story because I want to open up a book of the Bible in the New Testament that I would describe as the bull moose of salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, in the book of Galatians. Um, we're going to start a brand new sermon series on the book of Galatians, and though this book is very short in length, it is long in truth in the gift of salvation. Um, though one of the earliest of ancient Greek manuscripts in the New Testament, it, it is also applicable, very applicable and relevant for our modern times. 
The Protestant reformers referred to Galatians as the cornerstone of the Reformation, being saturated in, in salvation alone by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, just echoing the five solas of the Reformation that anchored that time in the church. The great lawyer turned monk, Martin Luther, facetiously referred to Galatians as his wife, as he studied and read it and produced a commentary in German for the, for the common German person to read more and to understand what this book was all about. Others refer to Galatians by describing it as the Magna Carta on Christian liberty, with so many themes of, of freedom, just like we, saw, we sang this morning, who the sun sets free is free indeed, and the great comparison of slavery in the law versus freedom in the spirit and the gift of the Holy Spirit. This book has, has had a profound influence on church history. And, and let me just bring us up to speed just a little bit about where we find Galatians in the context of the New Testament and the timeline of all the other New Testament books. Uh, Galatians, scholars believe, is, is probably one of the earliest books that was written, one of the earliest of Paul's letters. The earliest date that scholars give for Galatians, about 48, AD 48, uh, written to South Galatia, South Galatia theory versus the North Galatia theory. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Some date it as late as about 55 AD. There's only one other book, really First and Second Thessalonians, that scholars would say would compete for the earliest of Paul, Paul's letters. And of course, when we get into the context of the Jews and understanding how to incorporate the Gentiles and the law and how does that work in the church, we understand that this would be one of the earliest books that we have in the New Testament. The predominant theory is that Paul visited South Galatia when he wrote this book. And, and if you read Acts and you're familiar with Paul's missionary journeys, this would take us back to Acts 13 and 14, where you hear about the cities of Ica, um, Lystra, uh, Perga is in there, Derby, Iconium, however you, you pronounce that one. Acts 13 and 14 describe his first missionary journey. Of course, he's gonna start here and travel to, to Cyprus first. Then he goes to Perga, and these are the three big cities that he travels to. Uh, he'll come back to those cities on a second missionary journey. They think that Galatians was written between the first missionary journey and the second missionary journey, but before Acts chapter 15, with his, which is the Jerusalem Council. The traditional view, again, is that Paul wrote to the southern Galatian region before his second missionary journey started. These churches were just starting up, Paul brought the gospel to them. It was flourishing to the Gentiles, just like we read about in Acts chapter 15. Remember, Paul was a very well-educated, uh, versed in the Hebrew scriptures, a good family, good education as he was brought up. And so as he writes the letters of the New Testament, every single one of them is, is very logical, very systematic. And so if you wanted to look at kind of a general outline for the contents of Galatians, you'd, most people give it about just three major points. At the beginning, you've got the introduction to his letter that's pretty uh, common with all the letters in the New Testament at that time in the first century. And then he begins to defend his apostleship and talk about his authority that he has been given in his calling from God. In chapters three and four, Paul is gonna defend the gospel and he's gonna talk about justification by faith alone, probably one of the major doctrines 
as he explains the gospel is right there in Galatians 3 and 4, and then finally to the end of this book, and in chapters 5 and 6, he is describing how the gospel teaches us how to live a victorious, free life in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Each of these sections building one on the other. I like what one commentator says when he describes Galatians. He says, in this short letter, Paul outlines the bombshell truth that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. It is not only the way to enter the kingdom, it is also a way to live as part of the kingdom. He goes on and he says, Paul will challenge them, and in turn us, that Christians need the gospel just as much as non-Christians need the gospel. I think that's it's a profound truth that all of us can glean from. The, the gospel is not just something we believe and get past in our Christian life. We will live our life in maturity to Christ by constantly going back to the gospel over and over again. And Paul is going to nail us all right between the eyes with the truth of the gospel throughout this letter. Over and over again, he's going to say that your greatest problems in life are not solved by digging deeper and trying harder. You know, gird your loins and just press down and you can make it through any struggle, through any trial, suffer well through life. Our greatest problems aren't therapeutic. Our greatest problems aren't medically related. They're not educational. They're not fixed by self-help or motivation. Our greatest problems and our greatest needs that we will ever need throughout all of life, Christian and non-Christian, all of them are found in the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. And all of them get traced back to realizing who we are, our identity in Christ, because of the life-transforming power of the gospel. So, so Paul tells the Galatian churches, here's what the gospel is, here's how it helps you to live the Christian life. And just over and over again going back to the cross. As we preach through this in the next several weeks, the next months, this is the preaching outline that I'm going to provide for, for this series on Galatians. I'm calling this Gospel Matters. And of course, that's a double entendre, right? Because the gospel matters, and it deals with gospel matters, throughout all situations in life. We're gonna look at four major sections, the mark of the gospel, the minister of the gospel, the message of the gospel, and then finally, matter, matters of the gospel. And before I, I get too far deep into this, I was uh, texting with Dave Sargent this week, one of our previous elders here, about Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. And if you guys have a copy, this is a classical, classical book on his explanation and exposition of the, of the book of Galatians. And he just has some deep and profound themes. The preface to that commentary has showed up multiple times in church history and influenced great church leaders of the past. Charles Wesley, John Wesley, uh, many, many people were actually brought to faith by reading just the preface of this commentary to Galatians. And I wanna share just a couple quotes as, uh, as we begin this morning. Luther wrote, I'm writing on Galatians not because I desire to teach new things. By the grace of Christ, Paul is now thoroughly known unto you. But for that we have to fear, lest Satan take from us this doctrine of faith and bring into the church again the doctrine of works and men's traditions. One of the greatest defenses, one of the strongest arguments 
about religion, and as it ap- appears to, to come across as, as the traditions of men is, is just the truth of the gospel, that very simple but yet profound truth that drives us to Christ over and over again into, into the power of his grace. Luther continues, this doctrine, speaking of the gospel, can never be taught, urged, or repeated enough. If this doctrine be lost, then also the doctrine of truth, life, and salvation also lost and gone. If this doctrine flourish, then all good things flourish. As we cast a vision here at TBC just for the last several weeks, we started by talking about our core values as a church. And one of the core values at Tulsa Bible Church is the value, the fact that we value the precedence of the gospel, that everything that we do and every ministry that we function under will come under the power and the influence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel centers us. The gospel needs to be the driving influence behind everything else that we do. And if we get everything else wrong, that might be okay as long as we don't get the gospel wrong. The gospel has to be centered for everything that Tulsa Bible Church does and everything that we do individually in our Christian life. All right, so let's look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. In the ESV here, it says this, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, Paul is going to begin this letter in a very familiar way, very familiar manner for first century letters. Almost all of his letters begin in this way. He identifies himself as the writer. He identifies the recipients, the churches, or the church that he writes to. There are many similarities with other letters, but there is one major difference in Galatians. And we're going to talk about that next week, and so I want to invite you to come back as we transition to verse 6, six through 10 next week. It is going to be startling the way that Paul bypasses a thanksgiving section or anything else and goes right to the issue at hand. But at the outset, Paul is establishing his authority. And he refers to himself as an apostle. And I've always kind of struggled with this in the beginning of Paul's letters. You know, why is he boasting about his office, his calling, and the fact that he is an apostle? But, but really what he's getting down to is authority. And transferring God's authority to his message that he is writing to the churches and, and to these believers in Galatia. Uh, he calls himself an apostle, and generally in Greek, apostle is, is one who is sent, or to send, apostello is the verb form. When we get the, the noun form, we would say an apostle is a sent one, or one scholar defines a, an apostle as a commissioned representative by someone else for their purposes with a message to share. And the New Testament uses apostle with a capital A as a proper noun. And when it does that, it refers to the 12 apostles. Uh, When it refers to an apostle with a lowercase a, it's just referring in general to anyone who is sent. One reason why Paul emphasizes his authority is to say this. His message is not up for interpretation. His message comes from God, and it comes with the authority of God. Another way to, to put this might be, I, Paul, am different from everyone else, with the exception of the 12. And I'm coming with an, the authority of God. Now, here's the distinction. As a pastor at TBC, I can say, Scott can say, Kyle can say, we affirm the last part of verse 1. Right? Look down at verse 1. 
we are sent through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. I can't, Dennis can't, Kyle can't, Travis can't, Hale can't say the first part of verse one. That is something very specific to the apostles and to the apostle Paul. Not from men nor through man he's been sent. Nobody else can say that. DTS, our training, your training at Moody Bible Institute, we have all been sent through the avenue of men, and we have been affirmed, we have been ordained, we have been commissioned through the ministry and, and the churches that we have been a part of throughout those years. Paul says, I'm not sent through any church. I'm not sent through, through any human agency. I am sent through Christ and through God with an authoritative message for his church. And by the way, listen up because I've got something important really to say to you about the gospel and about the grace of Christ. Look down at, at verse two, chapter one. Paul continues, and, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches, might make special reference to that plural, to the churches of Galatia. Now, sometimes Paul writes to an individual church in the New Testament, and he, and he writes to uh, very specific personal issues, right? But notice who Paul specifically writes this letter to. He doesn't write to a singular church in a specific city. This isn't to the church in Corinth, to the church in Philippi. This isn't to the church in Thessalonica. This is to the churches in a bigger region. And Paul does this not because he needs to address a specific personal issue, he, he does this because he needs to address a doctrinal truth issue. And so he can send this message out to a plurality of churches, and behind it all is the same influence, it's the same truth he's trying to get to. This, this makes postmodern listeners and, and readers so uncomfortable because Paul is addressing a doctrinal issue in the church, and doctrinal issues are issues about truth. And we don't like to hear that. You think you understand what Paul's message was? Back to those listeners, here's my interpretation. I think his message was this. What's the truth behind this message? Who's right, who's wrong? I don't wanna really deal with that. If you're gonna be so narrow-minded that you think that you know exactly the truth that Paul is talking about and other people don't, postmoderns have a, a very hard time understanding a doctrinal truth issue that is being addressed, but that is exactly what's happening in the context of the first century here with the church and the Jewish-Gentile relationships, and as Paul goes to the Gentiles. Um, give you a couple examples of this. Um, David Letterman is doing an a interview kind of show on Netflix. It's been running. I don't know if any of you guys have watched it. It's during all the coronavirus stuff, and, and he's interviewing very famous people, and in one of the episodes, he interviews Dave Chappelle. Uh, comedian, African-American comedian, just super successful, uh, very famous. And during the interview, he and Chappelle start talking about his Muslim faith. And Dave Chappelle is an outspoken Muslim. And he, in the interview, he says something to the effect of, man, it's, it's really sad that so many people associate Muslims with terrorism, because the Muslim faith itself is actually a very beautiful faith. And and Letterman responds, you know, yeah, it's, it's, man, we've got to get to this point where we see that there are many ways to God, and everybody has their choice to, to pick whatever way that they think is, is the best at the time. 
Um, the second they say that, here's what they did. They took a doctrinal issue and they made it a preference issue, a very personal preference issue, right? And they eliminate truth entirely from the equation. Okay, so let's put truth to the side. Now we can talk about getting along with everybody else and tolerance and plurality and all these other things. Or, put it this way, have you ever known a a person who has the qualities of a peacekeeper or a politician? You guys do these personality studies ever? You hear about the campaigner personality or the peacekeeper personality? There there really is, like a a politician is a a guy that can kind of sit on the fence. You know, you don't want him to clearly come down on one side or the other side of the aisle, but you want him to be able to to make friends on both sides so that he can, he can get things done and, and people will appreciate him a little bit more. Or you think about just a, just a peacekeeper who can take two people that are going through a conflict. Okay, let's talk about this conflict, but, but first let's talk about what we have in common. Let's talk about the shared unity that we have together. And so these, these peacekeepers or, or a politician can, can take um, a matter put truth to the side and figure out a way to help people just function together and to live together in peace and harmony, right? Um, we had, a, had an elder at our church, previous church that I came from, and we were constantly just talking about issues and just different things in the church, and we had an issue that came up, and, and we said, okay, guys, what do we do about this thing? As we lead here in Kansas and as we carry out the function that we have that God called us to be as elders, and, and this guy stands up and he says, well, Here's the deal, if we make this decision, this group of people isn't gonna be very happy about it. And if we make this decision, this group of people over here isn't gonna be very happy about it. And I I think we should just go up there and and talk about the tension and just wrestle with it and just kind of, let's see how the the chips fall where they may, right? Working on a team, somebody asks, where does Jared stand on this issue? And that becomes a question of doctrine and a question of truth rather than personal preferences, right? In Galatians, Paul has to address, here's the deal, he has to address the things that are being taught by the false teachers that came behind him after he first brought the message of the gospel to Galatians. And as an apostle called by God, he addresses the doctrine of the gospel. Paul is a man who does not pull any punches He doesn't try to sit on top of the fence. He draws a clear line in the sand, and he says, you are either behind the truth of the gospel or you are behind works of the law and religion. It is that simple. This is true or this is false. Let the chips fall where they may. When he addresses the churches in Galatia, he's addressing the churches in America. He's addressing every church with a doctrinal truth issue. And all of us are going to have to figure out what side of the line we stand on. Because there is a true gospel and there is a lot of false ones out there. Paul helps us navigate those realities. Now, look down at uh, verses 3 through 5 because these verses really do get to the heart of the gospel and and Paul's explanation of it. Um, I heard a, a really good illustration of this just this week, actually. And uh, the preacher was saying, when a person is drowning, wherever they are, pool, sea, 
big body of water, whatever it might be. No one who rescues the swimmer is gonna throw them a manual on how to swim. If a person is drowning, nobody is gonna yell at the person, just kick your legs. Uh, do, do this with your hands and, and try to get your breath above the water, right? If a person is drowning, they're about to die. Right? And they cannot save themselves in that situation. Look down at, at verse three through five here. Grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us. Here's text might say to rescue us who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And I want you to pay special attention to the verbs there. ESV, he gave himself to deliver us. NIV, to rescue us. NASB says, to rescue us. Paul is saying something that distinguishes Christianity here from every other religion on the planet Remember the, the famous last words of Buddha on his deathbed? Behold, O monks, these are my last words to you. All component things in the world are changing. They do not last. Work hard and gain your salvation. Do your best. Do you see where Paul's explanation of the gospel in verses three through five is totally diametrically opposed to those words and to that religion? The gospel isn't work hard to save yourself. The gospel isn't about what you do at all. Who's the subject of the sentence? What is verse three through five all about? Who is verse three through five all about? God the Father and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about what we do. It is about what God has done for us. No one can become their own life raft. No one can become their own life preserver. In sin, you are drowning and you will die. And no amount of self-help tips, ideas, motivations, clues for living, coaching, mentoring, therapy, physicians, doctors, science, technology, no amount of it will save you from your sin. At the end of the day, nobody has figured out how to save people from dying. And that's where the gospel comes to light. It, that's where the gospel impacts our heart because Jesus gives us a gospel that does save us. Jesus gave himself to deliver us. And these verses go on to say that it is the Father's will. I want you to listen to Fung as a, a Korean scholar. He talks about the Father's will. He says, the will of our God and Father is the ultimate foundation of salvation. It is the active divine resolve which cannot remain in the sphere of, of thought but demands action. Let me read that again. The will of our God and Father is the ultimate foundation of salvation. It is the active divine resolve which cannot remain in the sphere of thought, but demands action. Here's the question. Why did Christ come to save us? Because the Father willed it. Because the Father loves us. And all of this was according to his will, his purposes, and his plan. And I want you to notice a, a really small, tiny word in these verses that is, is so key to understanding the doctrine of, of the gospel. Look down at verse four. Paul writes, who gave him, himself, speaking of Christ here, who gave himself for our sins. That tiny preposition for leads to a massive doctrine on the atonement of Christ. 
Several Greek prepositions can be translated with this English word for, but Paul uses a preposition that is distinct. It is not used very commonly in the New Testament at, at all. It's, it's very unique in that, in that way, but it functions for a very distinct purpose. This Greek preposition, you would pronounce it huper, and it is a marker indicating the action of the subject in somebody else's interests, all right? The action of the subject is working in somebody else's interest. So we can say he gave himself for our sins, on behalf of our sins, for the sake of our sins, or instead of our sins. This is the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement in the, in the doctrine of the atonement of Christ here. Theologians refer to it as the substitutionary death of Christ. And it means this, God did something for us that we could not do for ourselves. He substituted himself, his son on the cross, so that he would die and pay the punishment for our sins instead of us dying and paying the punishment for the sins that we deserve. Right, so he didn't deserve to die. He didn't deserve the punishment. He took the death and punishment for us instead of us. He literally took our place on the cross and he substituted his death for our life and for the death that we deserved. And the appeal to the gospel and the substitutionary death of Christ is to place your faith in the one who died for you on the cross for you instead of you. He died so you don't have to. He took on the wrath of God in our place so you don't have to become the bearer of that burden because it will take everything, including the presence of God, away from you. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom instead of, for the sake of the many. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, instead of us, he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. The emerging church is, is developing something right now that is trying to make the gospel more palatable. They say if the, the doctrine of the substitutionary death of Christ was true, it would make God the Father out to be a cosmic child abuser. After all, who would uh, submit their own son to a punishment that they didn't deserve? Why would he condemn his own son for, for this when his son was innocent in the first place? You can trace the history of this thought that's out there, and all it is designed to do is to make the gospel of Jesus Christ a little bit more palatable, to make it softer, and to take the wrath of God out of the equation and to give you just this uh, more palatable picture of the cross of Christ without the blood, without the gore, without the wrath, without the death. Um, it is <clears throat> an absolute shock how quickly the culture is shifting away from the truths that we have in the gospel. Even something as central to theology, to evangelical theology, as the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Uh, but yet it's out there. So let's, uh, let's talk about just a couple points as we close. And... Um, before I do, I want to I read a little bit from Luther's commentary on Galatians because it's so good. But uh, in, this, in the 1700s, there was a small group of guys who were seeking God. They were searching for God. And you probably know their names. John Wesley, Charles Wesley, William Holland. It was William Holland who got a hold of Luther's commentary and his preface, preface to Galatians, and he started to read it. 
And I want you to, to listen to William Holland's experience as Charles Wesley was reading out loud from the preface of Luther's commentary on Galatians. It says this, Mr. Charles Wesley read the preface aloud. And at a certain point, there came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. He says, my great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw my Savior. My companions, perceiving me so affected, fell on their knees and they began to pray. And when afterward we went out on the street, I could scarcely feel the ground that I trod upon. Just reading this explanation, this introduction to Galatians that Luther put together. The preface to Luther's commentary on Galatians had, had such a proud, uh, profound influence on those guys. They started to take it from house to house to their closest friends and just read through the preface and talk about the truth of the gospel and apply it to the word of God and what they're reading. And so again, as we, as we close and as we just introduce this book of Galatians, I want to give just, uh, just two points of application that talk about the truth of the gospel that this book explains so crystal clearly. First is this. The gospel is so straightforwardly simple, a child can understand it, yet it is so deeply profound that even the wisest will never fully comprehend it. The gospel is so straightforwardly simple, a child can understand it, yet it is so deeply profound that the wisest will never fully comprehend it. Something was happening in Galatia when Paul wrote this letter that every church today in America needs to pay attention to. Every individual needs to pay attention to and seriously contemplate the message of this ancient book. They heard the gospel from the Apostle Paul with clarity on his first missionary journey, but false teachers came in behind them with confusion. The Galatians thought they knew the gospel, but they were in danger of losing it, as Paul writes this book. In churches and individuals today, we experience the same types of things. We think we know the gospel, but we really don't know the gospel. We think we fully understand the gospel, but we really don't and never will fully understand the gospel. We think that the gospel has taken root in our heart. It is deeply perceived to all of its depths, but we have not allowed the gospel to root in certain areas of our life. One of my favorite pastors put it this way. If you think you fully understand the gospel, that proves you really don't. Others who say, I hardly understand the gospel, are finally getting it. Do you understand the profound depth, the mystery, and the truth of the gospel that needs to impact your heart and my heart on a daily basis when, when Paul says, I preach Christ and him crucified? Here's what he's saying. Everything I do goes back to the centrality of the gospel. My entire ministry is all about the truth of the gospel. It's a synecdoche. When he talks about the cross, it doesn't mean he doesn't preach from the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that he doesn't preach from Genesis and those, those passages that he can explain in the synagogues and lead to the person of Christ. It just means this, the central part of his message, the core element of what Paul was preaching in salvation by grace through faith is the truth of the gospel. And it's a part for the whole. It stands for everything else regarding redemption in the kingdom of God. I hear a lot of people use the term gospel today for good news. And, and when I 
keep listening to how they explain that and how they understand what the good news is, I begin to question if they really understand a definition of the gospel and the truth of what the good news really is. Sometimes the gospel sounds a lot like therapy in churches today. Sometimes it sounds a lot like you would hear from Oprah or Dr. Phil, void of the truth of Scripture. Sometimes I hear morality when I hear the gospel being preached. It seems like the ultimate goal is to make people behave better and act a certain way. Other times I hear self-help. God did his part, and now it's your turn to do your part. Finish the thing that he started, right? And the truth of the matter is the core of the gospel is that Christ died on a cross for your sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. The core, that is not the entire gospel message. That is the core, that is the centrality of the gospel. The gospel itself is is Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, came to the earth, lived a perfect life that we could never live, died on a cross, shed his blood on Calvary's cross, rose again the third day. That is the event, that is the central piece. This is our historical fact that took place in and around an area of Palestine that we know today as as Jerusalem through a historical person who is still alive today, fully God, fully man, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Our part is to believe that, to place our faith in the truth of that, and to understand that that core message, that gospel, will continue to impact our lives and take us more and more away from ourselves and sin and get more and more of Christ, right? He must increase, I must decrease, uh, John the Baptist says. Number two, as we close. The hope of the gospel is deeper than religion, systems, ideas, or methods because it reaches the heart, not just the head. The hope of the gospel is deeper than religion, systems, ideas, methods, programs, pamphlets, because it reaches the heart, not just the head. Um, In Galatians, I asked you to pay attention to the prepositions. I want you to go back and pay attention to the pronouns. Look back in in verse 4 again. Who gave himself for our sins. Christ died for us and for our sins. Luther makes a, a, a great point about this, again, just in the beginning parts of of his explanation of Galatians 1, and, and I just want to read this for you. It's so good. He says, Way, differently, way diligently, every word of Paul, and mark well the pronoun our. For the effect consists in the well applying of the pronouns, which we find very often in the scriptures. Wherein there is ever some vehemency and power Thou will easily say and believe that Christ is the Son of God who was given for the sins of Peter and Paul and of all the other saints whom we account worthy of God's grace. But it is a very hard thing that you, which judge yourself unworthy of his grace, should from your heart say and believe that Christ was given for thine invincible, infinite, and horrible personal sins. Luther says, let us learn here of Paul and to fully and truly believe that Christ was given, 
not for feigned sins nor for small sins, but for great and huge sins. Let us learn here of Paul and fully and truly believe that Christ was given not for feigned sins, for small sins, but for great and huge sins, not for few, but for many, not for conquered sins, for no man can overcome even the smallest sin and put it away, but for invincible sins. And except you be found in the number of those that say our sins, that is, of those who have the doctrine of faith and teach, hear, learn, and love, and believe the same, there is no salvation for you. The power of the gospel is, impacts our hearts very personally. It has to impact us individually and personally. And there is a big distinction between those who say Christ died for our sins and those who say that Christ died for sins. The place where the rubber meets the road and the cross impacts the heart is where you and I can sit in our seats and, and talk with our friends and go to Bible studies and disciple our kids and go to work and talk about the fact that Christ died for our sins. And we have been personally redeemed because of what he did for us on the cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for just for opportunity to gather together this morning and, and to worship you corporately. And um, we thank you for this great and powerful, just this small book that's tucked away in our New Testament called Galatians. Um, Lord, I pray that you would keep us from the same errors that the Galatian church was slipping into regarding the gospel. I pray that we would be firm. I pray that the elders and leaders and teachers here at TBC would be so solid on the gospel that the truth of it would never depart. Anything that we do and say, that we can plant that truth in the hearts of men and that you in turn by your Holy Spirit would transform those hearts with the power of the gospel. Draw us closer and closer to who you are Lord, we thank you most of all for sending your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the core of the gospel, this message that's about him and what he did for us. We thank you that simply believing that his blood was the perfect payment for sin, that we can have everlasting life. Lord, draw us deeper and deeper into the truth of the gospel on a daily basis. Show us those areas of our life that the gospel has not touched yet. And cleanse us as Kyle was praying this morning from those sins, help us to forsake them, to confess them, and to bring them to the foot of the cross. We pray that our life would be caught up in the same ministry and message that the Apostle Paul described his ministry as preaching Christ in him crucified. I pray that be true for all of us here, and I pray that be true for TBC. We ask it through your name, to you, Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ. For you three are the one true God and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.